Welcome to Dream Makers, candid conversations with women that will change the way that you see success, purpose, and what it takes to bridge the two. I'm Neha Sampat, a three-time tech founder and CEO with a focus on companies that are places to dream big, build up, and be a good human. I'm CEO of Content Stack and also a certified sommelier. So typically we drink wine here, (laughs) but both Leanne and I are getting over a cold. And so instead of wine, we're going to have tea, but we will talk about a wine that we love. So we'll come back to that in a moment. I'm joined by Leanne Buchanan, the president of Air Ventures, a social impact venture studio that scales technology and innovation solutions to systemic gaps in access, opportunity, and racial equity. She's also founder of the NIA Project. Today, we're going to talk about fostering inclusive tech ecosystems, creating sustainable nonprofits, and community building. Let's get started. Welcome, Leanne. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited that we're both here, both doing well, and excited to talk about my favorite topics. Same, exactly. We obviously have a lot of shared passions, so I think this is going to be a lot of fun. I just want to start off by saying that your whole portfolio of experiences seems to revolve around fixing systemic inequalities. How did you get inspired to focus on that? So that's actually an interesting question, and I love that's where you started. I would say there was something moving in the background that got me focused on systemic issues, but quite frankly, I would say that for me, I'm just a problem solver. There are a lot of problems that I saw around me, and I didn't see solutions that seemed to get to like the heart of the issue or the root cause or that we're thinking beyond kind of like a very myopic or narrow view of what we might seem. And so quite often it's just been, I saw a problem. I thought I had an interesting solution. Nobody else was employing that solution. And I think hindsight is 2020. Looking back, I see that I have a penchant for systemic issues. I think it's because I'm a bit of like a visionary thinker. I'm always thinking kind of beyond what's immediately in front of me to what could be. And that's probably the best way I can answer your question about my portfolio of work. It seems like a lot of it just comes from personal passion, but also just in wanting to make a difference. And that's, that's awesome. That's what this is all about. Before we get into more details on that, Typically, this is where we would taste wine together, and maybe we'll do a follow-up when we're both feeling great and enjoy that bottle of Sancerre. We both have a bottle waiting for us for when we recover of the Henri Bourgeau Sancerre. It's La Côte de Mont Dame 2020, which actually could last in its bottle for a good two to three years before it fully matures, so we could also hold on to it and regroup in a year or so. But it's a beautiful bottle. Sancerre in general is a really great region. We both love it. I don't know if you want to add anything, Leanne, for, you know, Sancerre in general, why you like the region or why you like those wines. I think for me, the Sancerre always has a hint of, I mean, en français, je ne sais quoi, but it's just like a hint of something special. And I think one of the the points that you you made in, in, in the notes was there's just sometimes a hint of like, this one has pineapple. There's always a little bit of a surprise to a Sancerre. And also it just rolls so well off the tongue, particularly when, you know, I often drink it with like a snapper or a nice fish. And so it's just so, it's so light, but, but got a little bit of fun to it. Yeah. Moving into the summer season, it's a great wine to have. And what I love about Sancerre, like you said, you can have it with a nice fish. You can have it with a wide variety of cheeses. 
You can also enjoy it alone because it does have the unique qualities of like something floral, something very stone fruity, just enough acidity to kind of cut through food, but also be enjoyable on its own on a warm day. So hopefully we'll both be able to enjoy that bottle soon. Definitely. Part two. But let's get back to the interview and learn a little bit more about you. So you told us that your overarching mission is to help tech ecosystems grow in a way that's equitable and inclusive. What are some of the biggest overall barriers to equity and inclusivity that you see? That's, I think, the billion-dollar question, but I'm never afraid of a large number. So I would say I think my overall work is really around helping communities and ecosystems become more inclusive and equitable. But I think the barriers would be often just the mindset. A lot of times when we look at how we design the architecture or the support infrastructure of a tech ecosystem or really any ecosystem, a company or kind of something broader like a school school system, we lose perspective that we have to design from a lens of racial equity, diversity and inclusion. And so our mindset is not keeping those things in mind. And so that's why we end up with the results. One of my favorite quotes is, we either live with intention or we exist by default. So I think that one of the biggest barriers is we are existing by default without baking intention in. I think one of the other barriers is that when we think about tech ecosystems and organizations alike, we often forget to measure what is actually happening. And what I say is sometimes there's gaps in access, gaps in opportunities, gaps in experiences, but we're not asking the questions and not trying to understand the right data points that help us get towards this broader, grander vision of inclusivity. And so, you know, we all know you can't manage what you can't measure. The third gap would be that we often think in silos. So when we think about tech ecosystems, we'll think about the funding or the accelerators or the incubators or the companies, but we don't see it as an interconnected fabric where these things can work in tandem. We can work in pipelines of funding, pipelines of opportunity, pipelines of growth. And so that that segmentation causes us to be stagnant and really less inclusive. That's super interesting. And, and there's a talent gap in there somewhere that is kind of interwoven into the fabric as you talk about. You actually developed a scorecard to identify issues in the ecosystem, you know, what areas to solve for from a culture standpoint, from a strategy standpoint, from an asset standpoint. Tell us a little bit about that. So the Ready Scorecard was an experiment. I think a lot of my projects often start out with experiments, particularly with the team at Air Ventures. And we had just come off the heels or we were coming to the end of our tenure in running the Venture Cafe. Now, when I started the Venture Cafe in Miami, there wasn't as cohesive social fabric. This was an ongoing a Thursday gathering where we see hundreds of people. And we had a really good snapshot from a relationship and a data perspective of what the community looked like. But we were beginning to see that the ecosystem was growing and we wanted to make sure that we could play a role in helping it grow in an inclusive and accessible way, the way that our programming had done in the, in the six years prior. And so our team really said, where should we focus? but we didn't know. We didn't have, there wasn't publicly available data on where the biggest gaps were when we were looking at our work in the community through a lens of readiness or racial equity, diversity, inclusion, as I call it. And so we partnered with a group 
called Forward Cities, who'd kind of developed an entrepreneurial equity scorecard. It didn't quite meet all of our needs. So we were able to expand it and work with them to develop the Ready Scorecard, which is a combination of both quantitative data, so a survey component, but also a qualitative piece where we actually did a listening tour, had 24 hours of recorded conversations, had interviews with about 51 organizations across the community. And this scorecard after partnering with well over 80 different organizations in South Florida, was the largest and probably most comprehensive assessment of a tech ecosystem through this ready lens ever done. It yielded over 1,400 individual data points that gave us really helpful insights also to our local elected officials on where they can drive their efforts, their funding, and their strategy. Wow, that's really awesome. And that's more deep dive that I've seen a lot of organizations do in terms of this kind of data. It's actually really hard to find too. Kudos to you for for doing that digging. And I'm sure there's a lot of work that goes into making that actually meaningful data. You chose Miami as your initial hub. Tell us about why. Why is that a great place to test and learn and, and kind of learn how to scale? So I've been in Miami for... I think close to 16 years now. I'm a recovering attorney. So my first career was practicing complex commercial litigation here in Miami with some amazing law firms. But when I made the switch into kind of tech and tech ecosystem building and looking at the intersection that tech has with social impact, I didn't want to leave Miami. That's where my roots were. And to be quite honest, Miami is a great hub because it's on this kind of up and comer list of these tech ecosystems that are poised, I think, to be really important epicenters of activity from a hemispheric standpoint, because geographically, think about where Miami sits. It's actually closer to other countries than it is to the rest of the United States, both culturally and physically. But also Miami is an interesting sandbox environment. You being a tech founder, know quite well what we're talking about, which is that we've got a lot of really interesting ingredients that help it being a right testing ground. It's a majority minority city in terms of racial and ethnic demographics, which means it looks like most major cities will look like in 10 to 15 years, but we're a bit of a head start. And so understanding the different cultural attitudes and backgrounds that go into products and services and perspectives, it's a really nice slice of a global community. I'd say the second reason why Miami is a great place to test and learn is we're a small town in that you can readily accessible access people. You know, our our mayor of the county, our mayor of the city, they're very well known, but they're accessible people that really care about entrepreneurship and tech and sustainability. And then that same attitude that how can I help is really embedded in our community. And I think the third thing that I would say about what makes Miami a great place as a hub and, and why we chose Miami is that similar to my second point, it's relationship built. It's a relational city. Social capital is probably one of the most important things that you can gather here, but it's easy to build your social capital. And a lot of what happens in our tech ecosystem is based off of, you know, who you know, and people want to get to know more people. That's awesome. Actually, I found some similar vibes in Austin after moving here from being in Silicon Valley for 20 years. And I can't agree with you more on the access to people that have influence and relationships. It's everything, right? And having tech like kind of at the center of an ecosystem, but being able to build from that and kind of have being one of the spokes into building an ecosystem is is super important. One of your first moves was founding Venture Cafe in Miami. 
Tell us a little bit about what that was and, you know, why was starting from there in community building so important? I would say if you think about ecosystems as like an organism, and I think I'm going like all the way back to to biodiversity and elementary school science, but they're like an interconnected organism where, yes, you mentioned the hubs and the spokes, but these different elements all work together. And I think why Venture Cafe was an important early kind of anchor of our ecosystem locally is because it focused on creating the social fabric. So the connectivity between some of those anchors, the institutions, kind of the investors, the sources of funding, government, all of the support systems, be it kind of, you know, service providers, as well as actual accelerators and incubators. But most importantly, what made Venture Cafe really um, an important accelerant to our ecosystem was really because it was open to everyone. We had these fundamental ideals that innovation is for everyone. Innovation, however, can be a term that a lot of people don't see themselves as innovators. I'm a black woman lawyer, for example. I never saw myself as an innovator. I didn't know what I was doing breaking into this space. But now, you know, several years later, I realized I'm definitely an innovator. I start things. I have bold ideas and I'm able to call together the money, the ideas, the talent and the resources to take an idea into scale. Over the five years, five plus years that we ran the Venture Cafe, we were able to serve 55,000 individuals, 49% of which were women, over 70% people of color. And those metrics, I think, are important because it demonstrates the community around tech, around innovation must be for everyone because tech and innovation are those important tools and social processes for making our world better, for making things more efficient. And everybody has the capacity to contribute to that. That's amazing. And I I like the kind of reframing of innovation and, and what it means. And like when you think of the word innovation in the traditional sense, you might think about like inventing something. And if we think about it today, it's really about challenging status quo and take, you know, having an idea that's different than the norm and finding a way to bring it to life. And as you say, to scale that idea into something real and tangible. Yeah, I think I would add, you know, the Latin root of inno is inno novus, just something new, right? And I think that when we take a, we zoom out and look at like society, we've got like some existential challenges that exist from kind of climate change to kind of this racial reckoning that really became part of the public zeitgeist in in 2020 with the murder of George Floyd. We have the lack of representation in tech. There's some big challenges that are going to require new thinking, new perspectives. And I think when I look at the definition of innovation, for me, it's really that it is anything new that can improve the human condition, right? Anything new that can change the way we do things because we recognize some things are working, but quite frankly, not everything is working quite well. Agreed. So community, back to community, it's it's sort of the new frontier for business today, not just business, but communities in general are impacting the way that people think about living their lives. Can you share a little bit about what you've learned just in the framework of community building? And, you know, you mentioned that some of the important elements of community building are shared values and shared experiences. Maybe you can expand a little on that. I love frameworks. So that's like the dangerous question for me. Don't ask me for a framework because I'll write one down. But when I think about community, 
yes, this idea of something shared, shared values, shared experience. But I think the real currency of community building is around trust. It's around centering the marginalized with this idea that when you center the most marginalized, you'll have a trickle up in opportunity. Community building is when you give of your time, your talent, your energy for this collective idea that you are coming together for a shared purpose or a shared experience. That requires a modicum of trust, which means there's got to be consistency. There has to be psychological safety. There has to be like these values that make sure that you're not disappointing people and that everybody feels valued. I would also say that an important element of community building, if you think about this as a framework, is kind of those shared values, which is you know something we did in Miami that I got a chance to be uh, one of the drafters of was the Miami Tech Manifesto, which was a clear and concise statement of our values about what we, what we were doing, why we were building, and, and what was important to us. And so values are important for both trust, but also because when you're building community, it's about people. And you connect with people with whom you have the, shares, the same values. And I think the last thing that's really important when it comes to kind of this idea of like, what does it mean to build community is value add, not value extractive. A lot of times in this tech space, we think about community as something digital. I think digital and tech are tools around larger ideas or to achieve a different end. And when we were working on the Venture Cafe, everything from Near Project, all of the ventures that exist in the portfolio at Air Ventures, pretty much all the work that I do around community building is how do you add value to other people? How do you see from the other side, see what their pain points are, what their ask what their what their goals are, create those feedback loops so you're continuously adding value rather than extracting from a group of people. Absolutely. Yeah, that give and take is so important and the give is more important than the than the take. It's interesting when people give a lot, they actually extract value naturally and more organically. It's inherent in some people and others kind of have to work harder at it and learn. I want to shift gears a little bit to Air Ventures, which funds ways to solve the gaps. You now have this end-to-end solution to improve equity and inclusion in tech ecosystems. It sounds like you've helped nonprofits operate in a way that's more sustainable than before. Why is that important? What's that all about? So Air Ventures is a venture studio, but we're just getting started, so we don't have a fund yet, but hopefully we will. And as a nonprofit, we, it will be a philanthropic kind of revolving fund rather than the traditional investment fund, just for, for clarity's sake. And why it's important for nonprofits to be sustainable is, you know, putting my lawyer hat, you know, nonprofit is a tax status, but you're still a business First, you still have to, you know, add value. You still have to be sustainable. And I think a lot of times we think nonprofit means that you should not have revenue. We conflate those concepts. But, you know, when I started my first two nonprofits, quite frankly, one that has now evolved into Air Ventures, what I needed and what I didn't have was kind of this wraparound support of the expertise, the the dollar amount that I ultimately got to scale the support to think through what is the product and service that I'm offering where I can both give value 
but also generate some type of financial return so that I'm not running check to check. I'm not living in like, you know, social impact poverty. Instead, I'm creating revenue to keep expanding on the impact, the positive good that my business is having. And so that's kind of like the big idea behind Air Ventures is like when we're solving these systemic challenges or trying to address big things like Nia Project, for example, we're bridging opportunity gaps for youth to get into college and to have leadership development. Those things take money. They cost money. But we're also generating value that is measurable from a triple bottom line perspective. So beyond the dollar to the social return. And so the reason why it started is like I looked at what I would need to create something sustainable that I didn't have. And that was kind of the thinking behind it. Does the funding come from outside private ventures, from organizations? Like if there's a listener here that wants to be supportive, is there a way for them to engage? Absolutely. Contact us at www.airventures.org. We'd love to chat. But the vision is similar to a capital campaign, but the vision is to create a multi-million dollar fund where with the projects that we launch and ultimately scale up into their own standalone nonprofits, spin out after about two to three years of support, that we can put the first money in or match the first money in. And then as they generate revenue, they can return the payment and then it will it will cycle back in. So that's kind of the idea. And the problems you know that we're solving, like Tech Equity Miami, for example, that is a venture that we, we launched earlier this year, which is a $100 million goal funders consortium where we launched with $55 million in commitments in less than a year from idea to, you know, an organization. And so that's the type of things that we're working on. They're big, they're important, and they deserve to be funded. You mentioned the NIA project a few times. Would love to learn a little bit more about that and just understand how does it help distribute opportunity as equally as it does talent? Yeah. So the way that I think about NIA project and and originally it started as it really started as a bunch of trips where I took high school students to uh, sub-Saharan Africa and now Southeast Asia because I thought, what were the experiences that made me competitive as a candidate for college and, and graduate school? And what were the experiences that changed my perspective so that I'd be able to write in an essay <laughs> from a very different perspective? That's how it started. It has since evolved, obviously, over the eight years since I launched it into an organization that's simply unlocking opportunities and the types of opportunities that we want to unlock for the high potential yet underserved youth of color are are two things one college we know the data shows and the research shows that higher education is one of the fastest ways to lift people out of poverty and it increases your earning potential over time it's just it's one of those things that isn't going to change. We also know that there are systemic barriers that keep youth of color, particularly those from marginalized backgrounds, underserved communities, from accessing the opportunity of education at the same rate of their peers. And so yeah. one of the ways that NIA Project helps to unlock that is we provide on-demand kind of college strategy coaching in a comprehensive content library that has, it's actually me because I've been coaching kids for 12 years, but it's, but it's, but it's micro content where you can go through, I think there's about 40 mini courses and learn everything that you need to know, not from a check the box perspective, but from a skills acquisitions perspective. A lot of students said, nobody ever asked me why I did a resume. I just thought I had to copy and paste. Well, when you learn how a resume is built, why you do it, what you're trying to accomplish, then you're going to develop that skill that's going to, you know, 
hold you well into the future. What I'd say with Nia Project that's super exciting is since we launched, 100% of our fellows have gotten into college. 95% have won scholarships, close to almost $20 million in scholarships in eight years. We had one young lady whose story went viral last uh, recently on CNN, Good Morning America, because she won $4.7 million worth of scholarships through our access method. So it's a content library. We're working on an AI-based kind of customizable roadmap. So when you input your challenges, you can get a roadmap of where you should focus. And then the last piece is this coaching methodology that we're beginning to train other organizations on how they can use the content, the roadmap, and this coaching methodology to see the same results for their students. That's awesome, Leanne. I just like, I saw you light up while you talked about that. And it just, it like, I literally had chills from just thinking about how many people you've impacted. It's really, really awesome to hear. And I, I love that you're finding ways to scale that beyond the people that you can directly reach. Just incredible. I'm so impressed and in awe of what you've, you've already accomplished. If there was a, a magic wand that made everyone do one thing to create more inclusive ecosystems, what would that be? It's actually quite simple. It doesn't require a magic wand. It's a piece of advice that one of my former law partners told me. And he was telling me this when he was encouraging me to become more of a rainmaker and develop business. But he said breakfast, lunch, and dinner. He said, Leanne, the way that you get clients and the way that you build relationships, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And so I actually take you know, offer that same piece of advice to a lot of people. I think a lot of times how we can connect across lines of difference and really understand other people's perspective is if we build relationship with them. But you have breakfast, lunch, and dinner and coffee with people that are not in your circle, people that look different from you, people whose experiences are different than you. And it's not just to sit there and eat, but it's really to understand where they're coming from, what challenges they're experiencing, you know, talk about questions to understand how their perspective and experience might differ from yours. Why that's so important, because I think the first way to change culture, and I think culture is one of the systems that we forget is the most pervasive, both in our organizations and our ecosystems everywhere, in our communities. The first way to change culture is to change mindset. And you change your mindset by building relationships with people whose mindset is different than yours. Absolutely. Yeah. It's broadening your perspective. And it's kind of talking about what you were doing with the kids and taking them to new places to open up their minds and change, you know, kind of change their mindset to believe that things are bigger than what they know, which is setting them up for future. And in the same way, we as adults can learn to do a lot of the same. Yeah. I think we forget that when you change the way you see things, the things you see begin to change. I love, I love that quote because it's just kind of like, you know, a lot of product designers, sometimes they'll, they'll stand on a table and look at the problem. And you're like, why are you standing on a table? This looks weird. But if you think about it, it's kind of like a Rubik's cube. You and I could be looking at the same cube, but depending on like if we've solved it or not solved it, we're seeing a completely different thing. It's the same object, the 3D object. And so I think it's so important, you know, with the Nia fellows, I'm, I'm getting ready to do two fellowships in Ghana in, in about less than 10 days just to catch up for the pandemic. And they come back different people because when you open your mind, you're able to kind of expand the amount of things that come inside. That's awesome. A couple of things you said that really stuck with me. And I think about a mentor that I had that kind of asked the question, you know, what advice do you have for me in, in my life and as a leader? And he said, 
when you approach things, approach them with your with your hand out like this and not with your hand out like this. And I think you're kind of exemplifying that, right? Teaching, not just giving, but also teaching people to give and teaching people to open up their minds and learn so that they can be better givers, better leaders, and better members of, of the community and society. And so um, again, I applaud you for everything that you've done. I'd love to move into rapid fire. I have four questions that I like to ask my guests at the end of every episode. So I'm going to start with this one, which is what is your wake up song? Oh, that's a good question. I, I wake up before my alarm and I don't wake up to music. But if I had to have a wake up song, whoo. So the wake up, the song that's been like playing in my head recently is Call Me Owl. <laughs> Paul Simon. <laughs> I don't know. That's like the song that's been like running in my head uh, recently. But it's a fun song. It's kind of like, you know, it's a fun wake up song. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Love it. If the 19 year old you asked you today what they should read or listen to, what would you say? Whew. 19. Man, when I was 19, I was just finished college and I was a very different person. I probably read this when I was 19, but I get something new from it each time I read it, which is The Alchemist by Paolo Coelho. It is the book that we give to all our fellows. I would say the second book, just a twofer, that I wish I had read when I was 19 and really understood it, and I didn't read it until I was in my 20s, was The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz Jr. Mm-hmm. It fundamentally changes the way that I think and the way that I interact with people and the way that I live my life. Um, and so simple, but really quite profound. Those are great additions to our book list. Thank you. Can you recommend a favorite wine or any favorite beverage? So alcoholic or non-alcoholic? Totally your call. (laughs) I usually ask about a favorite wine, but since we're drinking tea, I opened it up. So I'm typically a non-wine drinker. I'm a big fan of gin. So one of my favorite drinks would be like a a Bombay East a cocktail with elderflower, cucumber, a dash of maybe jalapeno, and a little bit of lavender. And that is a delicious wow. drink. That's fancy. All right. And what do you think our listeners should do tomorrow to help them become dream makers? Journal. I would say I'm an avid journaler, if that's a word. Um, I, I, I do it as part of a practice to have more balance that I call space. But create space in your schedule, in your life to, to journal. I think the one way to become a dream maker is actually to write down your dreams. When you write down your dreams, you give your dreams leg, you anchor them, yeah. and you begin to take them from idea to substance. And so, so I think journaling is so critical for being a dream maker. Love, 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 love that advice. And we've had that from a few other dream makers that have been on this call, and I couldn't agree more. And the idea of writing it down and manifesting into reality is so important, especially to get in the habit of that at a young age. Leanne, thank you so much. This was fantastic. I loved learning more about what you're doing. I hope to get more involved and be supportive as we continue to get to know each other. And thank you again for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for having me. And I like, I know we got to do it to part two when, when we're both able to. <laughs> I'll come see you in Miami and we could uh, drink a bottle of that together or have the Bombay East, which sounds really beautiful too. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And I appreciate the opportunity. 
Thanks so much for listening to the Dream Makers podcast. You can reach out to me, Neha Sampat, on Twitter at NehaSF, that's N-E-H-A-S-F, with your comments, suggestions, your favorite wake-up song, wine, or Dreammaker Woman to know. Please also leave a review and subscribe to Dreammakers wherever you get your podcasts. In the meantime, keep dreaming big, building up, and being a good human. Thank you.